SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Underdog Podcast, CUSA edition on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and the FCS. A lot to get to with it, so we're going to be going fast. We're going to be, I was going to say we're going to be going hard, but that sounds weird. Um, we're we're going we're gonna to go in depth about what happened this past weekend in Conference USA, including the upcoming CUSA matchup, uh, CUSA title game matchup, I should say, between UTSA and North Texas, a rematch that I know we're all eagerly anticipating. Uh, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you as always. And Eric, we're back from a restful Thanksgiving break and ready to get back at it here with uh, a lot going on in the college football world right now. Absolutely, Joe. Hope all of our faithful listeners out there had a restful, productive, and fruitful Thanksgiving holiday. I know I certainly did. And uh, got to pick up on one thing you said there in the open. I think uh, you'll appreciate this as a fellow 2000s wrestling fan. <laughs> the Rock had a t-shirt that I vividly remember. Uh, yeah. it, it, it was hit it strong, hit it fast. <laughs> and, uh, or no, I was like, hit it strong, hit it hard, or something like that. And yeah, as as you know, a uh, a Ute, <laughs> I didn't fully get the uh, the double entendre there, but yeah, we'll, we'll try to avoid that on this podcast. Oh man, we're getting too close to Christmas to be doing stuff that'll put us on the naughty list, Eric. Absolutely, uh, Beth. <laughs> if you hear this, we apologize. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson, if you hear this, we also apologize to you. <laughs> yeah, that's a completely different Dwayne Johnson than the Dwayne Johnson exists now. The guy who was hitting mankind over the head like 20 times with a chair. Right. His muscular ears hear everything. <laughs> I haven't seen Black Adam, but I, I, I imagine that'll be part of that storyline. <laughs> All right, let's let's all right, let's let's dive into uh, this past weekend's slate of CUSA action. First of all, uh, Western Kentucky beating Florida Atlantic thirty-one to thirty in an overtime matchup there, and of course the big. Um, big effect that that game had on the CUSA world was kind of the last uh, straw that broke the camel's back for FAU in terms of Willie Taggart. Uh, He is no longer the coach there and a nationwide search has commenced. We've got a couple articles up already on underdog dynasty, looking at some potential candidates to replace him. So Highland crew, Joe to check those out from uh, our longtime buddy and former editor of the site, Cyrus Smith. Great composure from Austin Reed and the rest of that offense to uh, get it done on the two-point conversion there. Um, Big catch from Josh Simon to get that play done. 571 yards for the Western Kentucky offense here. And, you know, Eric, we can talk all day about... Big win for Western Kentucky. They uh, get their eighth win of the season. Um, And I think... Tyson Helton showed in his uh, post-game presser that he was very proud of kind of the composure they showed in a, in a clutch situation. And uh, for Willie Taggart, disappointment was obviously relevant. And before the day was over on Saturday, he uh, he got the walking papers, unfortunately, for him. Joe, really quick, I'm, I'm going to take a couple seconds just to touch on this game here from the FAU perspective. Because, Joe, and I'm, I, I know you probably watched it from start to finish. This was a microcosm of... FAU season and in all honesty, a microcosm of Willie Taggart's tenure at Florida Atlantic. You saw, and I'm definitely curious your thoughts on this. I felt that you saw one of the best performances of the year from FAU in terms of they played pretty much up to the potential. When you look at Western comes as a game seven and five FAU at 
five and six. You look at it on paper and you think, okay, they suffered the tough loss. They being FAU suffered the tough loss against Middle Tennessee. It's going to come in, roll over, not have a shot. Western Kentucky's offense, Austin Reed, yeah, he threw for 410, but went 28 of 52. They had to work for every bit of that 410. Uh, again, I'll get your thoughts on this, but Tyson Elton had to turn to the run game a lot, especially in the second half. Now, I do think that's one of the admirable things about Tyson Helton and specificity. The offense that they've cultivated over the past few years, yes, it's a pass-heavy offense. It puts up a lot of points, but Tyson Helton hasn't been shy about saying, hey, pass ain't working. We're going to go to the run. And again, they did a lot of that in the second half. But for FAU to hold Western scoreless through the first quarter, hold Western to what, 14 points through three or 17 points through three, they did everything they, they, they had to do to win. They just couldn't make enough plays on offense. But you got the best of Larry McCammon. I know I've been talking about him on this podcast for a few years now, the three-star prospect out of Hoover High. It'll be interesting to see what his future is with the uh, coaching staff, coaching changes. But 16 carries for a buck, 27 and two scores. Nikosi Perry rose to the occasion. He still had a couple balls that you wish he had back, but 27 of 39 for 283, two touchdowns. Um, definitely solid defensive play. Again, I, I saw a couple big plays from uh, Jalen Wester, who's filling for Eddie Williams. Evan Anderson had a giant third down stop. Uh, and again, Joe, I know you watch this game from start to finish, so you can't miss big number eight there in the middle. Uh, he had a, a, quite a few um, uh, stops there in terms of the, the West Kentucky run game. Uh, Day-Day Hill, four pass breakups. You know, TJ Young played well. I saw a couple plays, uh, Smoke Mungin, you know, got in there as well. All the talented guys who have talked about on this podcast. But at the end of the day, like I said, just not enough plays to get the job done to win. You know, plenty of potential. You see that 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 the flashes. Uh, if you're an FAU fan, the flashes that give you reason to believe that this team should, especially in this year's Conference USA, where outside of UTSA, no one is really head and shoulders that number two team. Reason to feel that a couple a couple games go go their way. You know, I think what's this? I think this is going to be the fourth loss this year by seven points or less. And they're playing in the conference title game. So I can understand that's something, Joe, that after year one, you look back, it's like, all right, you know, a couple bounces here, a couple bounces there, and things turn our way. But after three years of kind of this consistent falling short, I, I do understand, especially with a lot of the chatter that was coming out of Boca last year, it felt that uh, this is a move that could have been made last year by Brian White and some of the folks there in Boca. They decided to go ahead and do it this year. But yeah, Joe, just kind of want, want to get your thoughts there because, um, you know, we'll talk about Western. And the fact that, you know, they fall just a little bit short of the CUSA title game as well. But uh, and now that you've had a chance to watch, you know, FAU at essentially what was maybe not their best, but I'd say their best against formidable competition. Do you kind of see what I've been talking about over the past few years as far as why this is a team that's been a, a trendy pick, an intriguing pick uh, to kind of compete to the top of Conference USA? Sure. I mean, they left it all out there in this game for sure. And I mean, for me, the the doubt was never whether or not the talent was there. It was just whether or not it was all going to come together in, uh, you know, and be in sync enough for a win. And we saw it a few times this year, but it just didn't happen enough against, uh, you know, a Western team that's got a lot of electric players on that offense in particular. But, you know, to your point, I've been impressed with Nikosi Perry all year with just a few plays short, but incredible athlete clearly has grown so much in his college career. And throughout this entire season, um, he, you know, he kind of showed that he can be, you know, the, the leader of a winning team. It didn't come together in a few spots, but altogether, I, I think you have to look at what was accomplished this year and be happy with certain aspects of it. Obviously five and seven, isn't going to cut it when 
the expectations have been, you know, high for this program, more or less uh, from the get go. But you still have a lot of talented players. We'll see who sticks around with, uh, you know, guys like Evan Anderson, et cetera. But Larry McCammon had a great year, as we've talked about. Perry had a great year. Some of the names, some of the other names on there on that offensive line, those transfers that came in uh, played pretty well. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think the <laughs> we, we kind of saw this decision coming as we talked about in terms of the coaching change. No, undoubtedly. I mean, we knew that, and it's not to say that six and six was the expectation, but I I thought, quite frankly, they had to go, they had to win this game to get bowl eligible and then win a bowl for Willie Taggart to have any shot of coming back. So, yes, it's something that we did see coming. I I just think from the Florida Atlantic perspective, it'll definitely be interesting, intriguing, and we'll talk about that in the middle portion of this podcast to see what direction that they may go in because there is a fair amount of talent on the roster. It's just going to be a matter of, A, how much of that chooses to stay with the new coaching staff and, yeah. and B, you know, how can they build upon that? Yeah. And, you know, we, we were talking a bit um, with some of our other staff members off air about how quickly FAU was going to fill this role. And we've mentioned the talent that's remaining on that roster because there, there is a lot of talent on that roster left from this team. Do you think that's why they're looking to get this position? You, that's why you think they're going to fill this position quickly in order to try to convince some of those guys to stay. I think they're going to fill this position quickly because A, it's an attractive job. B, I just think timing is of the essence. Since in specificity, again, we'll talk about in the middle portion of this podcast, that early December timeline for you know enter, entrance into the transfer portal and then yeah. early signing day coming up. I just think it, you know timing is of the essence with this job being in Florida, heading to the American you got to get someone in place and and there are plenty of good candidates out there. I don't think this is a year that you need to be taking five, six, seven weeks to establish, you know, who's going to be your next coach. Fair enough. We'll see if they follow through on that timeline for now. Let's talk about North Texas beating rice 21 to 17 and the mean green secured their spot in the CUSA championship game here. Such a huge performance by Icaca Ragsdale, 17 rushes for 122 yards and a touchdown. Also caught five passes for 59 yards and a touchdown through the air. Uh, one of two touchdowns that Austin Ani threw on Saturday. Uh, for the Rice side, freshman A.J. Padgett under center for the Owls hung in there, but really he, he turned it over twice and in a four-point game, that's inevitably going to be the difference maker. So uh, Rice finished the regular season five and seven, but depending on what happens, can still get a postseason berth because of their academic progress rate. You know, sometimes it pays to be a rocket surgeon there. Um, but uh, that that's kind of where we're at with this game. North Texas, um, they get the win. They play really well uh, in, in all phases of the game, and, and they get a slim win over an Owls team that was uh, playing for their postseason lives. Joe, really quick, before we get into the breakdown of this game, just want to ask your thoughts on Rice. Yeah, They lose five out of their last seven, right? So mm. they that would have made them three and three and two, I believe. Um, or, or even let's say they lost their last three, right? So, uh, you know, mm. they had three chances to get to six. Yep. Um, even if they get the bowl, they get the bowl berth because of the APR rankings, What's your thoughts as far as – I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying Mike Bloomgren um, is on the hot seat, but I do think we all thought coming into this year if, if – it, it would be kind of dicey if they didn't make a bowl. So just kind of what's your assessment of that, even if they do make a bowl? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a disappointing result for sure. I mean, you go back and look at what they were able to do, and I think Kevin and I talked about this a little bit as well. So many of these losses were by – 
one score, right? You know, they were, they lose to uh, Rice, <clears throat> or the, sorry, they lose to UAB by four points back in October. Uh, they lose to FAU by three um, the following week. And let's not forget they lost to a Charlotte team that was, you know, kind of the lowest of the low at that point. So I think they're going to look at those three contests, especially um, in retrospect and be like, those were our chances to really, you know, elevate this program to a different level than what it could have been had, uh, you know, had other, you know, than what it could have been otherwise. Uh, I mean, I think for Mike Bloomgren, the expectations were definitely for this team to improve. And I absolutely think they do. I think they got a little bit unlucky with injuries at the end, which is kind of a common theme for the rice program um, as of late. But, you know, I think, it's not where you wanted to be ultimately, because again, this was a team that I think there was a realistic shot for them to win, if not six, like seven games, but five wins is better than what they've done any other year that Bloomgren has been at the helm. And again, even if it's, you know, kind of a continued tradition of, of rice to have excellent academics, if you're in a position where you can be five and seven and still qualify for a bowl game, that's part of being a division one head coach too, is making sure your guys are on that track. So it's not amazing, but it's a it's a good year for rice football, I think. I agree with you that the academic success is part of your role as a head coach, but that's looking at it in a one-year snapshot as opposed to the greater um snapshot of Mike Bloomgren's tenure. So here's all I'm saying. I'm not advocating for him to be fired. I, I just think okay. he has one year left on his tenure uh, on his contract. I, I don't think we're in a situation where an extension is, you know, end up on his desk anytime soon. I, I think you let him finish out this contract if that's the route you want to go entering the American. Because, um, yeah, you talk about it. The losses by multiple, by by less than one score mm-hmm. definitely play a factor in how you want to view this team. But you know me. With Rice, I've kind of taken the big picture perspective for a while here. It, it has been disappointing that Mike Bloomgren hasn't been able to find a quarterback. Now, with that being said, TJ McMahon did look like he was that guy before injuries, and they have been bitten by the injury bug at that position over the past few years. So that is something to take into account. Uh, and I want to give him credit for going to North Texas and playing well. You know, you talked about the fact that A.J. Padgett got this start, turned over twice. They, they had a chance. I mean, they were leading in the fourth quarter. It's just a game that you wish they could have closed out, but – Give credit to Seth, Seth Luttrell's club. Uh, when you have a player like Akaka Ragsdale, who is one of the top running backs in Conference USA, soon to be off to the American, it's going to be hard to keep them, you know, at bay for that long. You know, what did uh, Ragsdale have? Something like 180 total yards between being the leading the leading rusher and leading receiver for North Texas. So certainly a good day for them. And, and yeah, like I said, I want to give them credit for going to Denton and and playing well, uh, playing against a North Texas team. has been really good in conference. You know, they've, some of their losses have been teams out of conference. But uh, all things being said, I, I guess it, it, it's, just, it's a feeling of incomplete, seeing that they just were right there on the doorstep and, and seemingly, again, seemingly, because they still have that outside shot, weren't able yeah. to get the six wins. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm not arguing against the fact that they should have garnered enough wins to get that bowl eligibility regardless of the situation. But I don't know, for Bloomgren, I mean, again, I think I think a lot of coaches say like we're making progress, we're getting there. I think this is one of those instances where he actually is. I mean, he's uh he's improved a little bit every year, you know, with the exception of the COVID year. And Frankly, you mentioned he has one year left on his deal. I don't like there's no point in 
firing him. I don't it, give it, give him an extension. Probably not. Or at this point, you know, that's, that's not where I would go. Even if they did get to a point where next year they were six and six, I think you can get someone who, you know, can, can get that program to the exact same point for, you know, cheaper, but like, it's in, in my mind, he'll be there through his contract, but, and frankly, I don't, I don't think there's too much you can really be mad at this year other than those couple losses that I mentioned. But obviously while he's the head coach, he takes a big chunk of that responsibility. Definitely not all on him. No, no, absolutely. I mean, the only reason I kind of talk about it, you know, in detail, the contract and where he's at is just, I think, because does Mike Bloomgren have the legs to go in there and say, Hey, I want an extension. Maybe not, but how much does that play a factor again, going into the American with recruiting, will other teams use that as a factor saying, Hey, that guy's got one year left on his deal. They didn't even extend him. You know, he'll be gone next year. You really want to play for him. You can come to us in North Texas, UTSA, et cetera. I'm not saying that those schools are making that argument. I'm just for the record. I'm just saying it's something that could be used against them in recruiting. So that's the only reason I bring up the, the contract and specificity. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, and on the North Texas side, Katie Davis as well. 13 tackles, probably still my pick for CUSA Defensive Player of the Year, but we'll get there. All right, and then let's talk about Louisiana Tech and UAB. Bulldogs losing that one 27-37. Uh, great season for Dwayne McBride carries on. He runs for a school record 272 yards in this game on 16 carries. Also had a rushing touchdown. And let's not forget big contributions from Jermaine Brown Jr. as well in this contest with 22 carries for two touchdowns here. Um so UAB are headed to the Bahamas Bowl to play in Miami of Ohio on Friday, December 16th. That has already been announced. So not really the expectations that uh, we had for UAB at the beginning of the year. Thought we were going to be, thought they were going to get a few more wins, but got the injury bug a little bit down the stretch. But they still get a bowl game. They get a great location. And uh, on the Louisiana Tech side, they finished the season three and nine with this result. Not altogether unexpected, but, you know, some decent fight from uh, Sonny Cumbie's squad in his first year there in Ruston. Yeah, it's going to be much of the same as what I've talked about for Louisiana Tech. I've had a chance to see them in person when they came to FIU. It almost feels like if they were able to sneak to, you know, squeak out that game, that could have been the 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 one that changed the tide that turned the tide, excuse me, for them as far as maybe getting to five, six wins to get into a bowl game. But again, all things considered, year one in Sunny Cumbie, I look at it as a productive step forward, especially with the injuries they had at quarterback. Um, nice to see that they've had multiple quarterbacks who can step in and do what Sunny Cumbie is asking of them from the UAB side of things. I, again, you hit the nail on the head. It, disappointing that it was a fight to get the six wins, but still better that they did. It, it took all of Dwayne McBride, you know, all the 1700 rushing guards for him to get there. I, I think the, the broader discussion, and we'll have to see how it plays out in the upcoming days as to whether Brian Vincent is retained or they'll go another another direction. I'm expecting that to be the case. I saw just on CUSA Twitter someone say, you know. Uh, if you bring back BV interim tag again, question mark. And uh, while that's an interesting thought, uh, I don't think if you're Brian Vincent, if you're Brian Vincent, there's no way in hell you go for that again. <laughs> you come back and be the interim on a second year. I don't think you can realistically sign up for that at that point. You've had me for a year. Right. You got you got to make your mind one way or the other. But uh, all things considered, again, uh, a positive result for UAB because had this thing flipped on on its head and gone the other way, then it would have been a real disappointment in my mind. So they get a nice bowl, a nice bowl game, continue their streak of making bowl games, which is obviously a positive thing. And look at the extra practices to assess uh, their program as they head into the American. 
Yeah, I don't think they're in a bad spot at all. You know, a lot of people are kind of looking for at some of the other candidates um, that are in the coaching pool for this UAB job. And I don't know, I don't think that very many of them are particularly appealing. And I know you want someone that, um, you know, I, I know one frustration amongst the UAB faithful has been, you know, getting more local products since there is such a, a you know, a talent rich pool in the greater Birmingham area, as well as, you know, the state of Alabama, obviously. So um, that's, that's going to be tough to find. And while Bryant Vincent has definitely made some mistakes this year, we'll see if he's able to kind of get that interim tag taken off and obviously a win in this Bahamas bowl against a pretty decent, you know, Miami team that like UAB has definitely had some issues with injuries this year. And of course they were very talented as well. Um, they, they had high expectations for this year, but you know, fell short due to some injuries as well as some other factors um, throughout this year. But we'll talk about that bowl game in a little bit for now. Let's go back to UTSA beating UTEP 34 to 31. Incredible comeback win by the Roadrunners in this one. UTEP was up 24 to zero about midway through the second quarter before the Roadrunners put their foot on the gas here. Three touchdowns for Frank Harris, uh, another strong day for him. And last week, Eric, we talked about how the Roadrunners were going to need someone to step up in the passing game with that injury to DeCorian Clark, as well as some of the other depth issues they were experiencing. But they got that in Tyke Ogle Kellogg, who was the leading receiver with 142 yards and a touchdown on just four catches in this game. And uh, let's not forget Zachary Franklin either with seven catches for 126 yards and a touchdown. So, you know, the story for UTSA going into this USA championship game is going to be the amount of injuries that they're, that they're dealing with among those starters. Um, but with, with UTEP, like so close, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't think anybody us included really gave them a chance against this rotor and team going into this contest. And when they were up 24 to zero, I had the reaction of, Oh my gosh, they're actually going to do it. <laughs> you know, this is going to be one of those things like what UTSA ran into with, uh, with North Texas last year. Uh, it's just going to be that result that comes out of nowhere and just kind of messes with everything in terms of bowl eligibility and that sort of thing. But you know, it, it wasn't to be, Strong day for uh, for Brown Holtz again. He's uh, he played in Steed of uh, Hardison, and you know it, for UTEP they're just so close. <laughs> like, but they they missed bowl eligibility, unable to follow up on what they were able to do last year with the postseason berth there. Joe, really quick, I just want to shout out um, my buddy Colin Deaver. Of course, does a great job uh, there in El Paso as a sports director for KTSM. I believe that's the ABC, excuse me, the NBC affiliate in El Paso. Uh, if you happen to see a tweet. Because, you know, the CUSA uh, Twitter space is one that's uh, close knit. You happen to see a tweet from Colin Deaver TVM, not KTVM, but TV but, or, or KTSM, but Colin Deaver TVM. It is fake. Uh, there's a tweet out there saying that Dana Dimmel has been dismissed of his duties and that they're going to hire Hal Mummy uh, effective immediately. That is false. So just want to go ahead and get that out there because it's at jo- Joe. It was so and you know me like I'm. Pretty much a stickler for things. Uh, I don't know if I just got caught up in the fact I thought it was Colin's backup account, but even I was following that account. <laughs> so uh, for anyone out there, just want to give you guys a heads up. Dana Dimmel is still employed despite the tough loss. As you talked about, a 24-0 lead in the second quarter. When I saw that, I had the same reaction. I said, man, that same team that put a really strong performance up against FIU, they mm-hmm. found something there with Calvin Brownholz. You know, game planned really well. Just kind of bum-rushed UTSA early on. But as you talked about, 
uh, UTSA, just so much talent, so deep. I know you've heard me talk about Taiki Ogle Kellogg on this podcast uh, plenty of times. A guy who I don't want to say has been buried on the depth chart, but you know, guys like Zakari Franklin, JT Clark, and Josh Cephas have just stepped up uh, to the point where he's kind of you know fallen down a little bit, but still shows his presence being a tall target at 6'5", 200 pounds, and four receptions for a buck forty-two and one score. Kavarian Barnes, Joe, again, you're going to look at the future but also kind of the present of the UTSA run game. Considering Brendan Brady's gotten banged up as well. He gets 15 carries, 55 yards. And then the one thing that you had the question about Callum Brownholtz coming into this game, he's, a, 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 he's an established threat as a runner. And you saw that with the 23 yard touchdown run, but could he get it done consistently as a passer? You get the the interception return by Dadrian Taylor. Um, you know, that's one that comes back to bite you. He has the two TDs, two picks. Just not enough there at the end. I think that's really what hurt him, Joe, because you knew for them to close out this game, it was going to be on 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 the on the backs of Ronald A. Watt and Deion Hankins. But Calvin Brownholz, 11 to 24 for a buck 89, just not enough. I believe it was something like three or four completions in the second half. Not enough down the stretch to get it done. So just so heartbreaking, so tough for Dana Dimmel squad. But yeah, I mean, give credit to, to UTSA. I mean, they're, again, I think that's what you got to be impressed about is with all these injuries, that could be enough to derail any team. And they found a way to just have guys step up and win games. Yeah, you know, I think with this UTSA team, that I think that's going to ultimately be the difference in their title hopes here you know if they can keep those guys going who have been able to step up in that uh in the steed of some of these other uh guys who have been dealing with some of these nagging injuries throughout the season then you know i think they're going to be in good shape come uh come friday when they play north texas but we'll we'll talk about that a little more uh shortly for now let's wrap up the recap of last week with middle Tennessee beating FIU 33 to 28 Uh, Hayden Carlson getting the last minute start at quarterback for the Panthers due to a lingering thigh injury to Grayson James their uh, first career start for Carlson and it was clear that that McIntyre had a lot of faith in him from the start I mean he threw the ball 52 times in this contest uh, 29 of 52 to be exact for 414 yards with four touchdowns and four interceptions in this game. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, this this was MTSU show and the defense stepped up with those four interceptions. Great rushing attack led by Darius Bracey. Chase Cunningham also ran in two touchdowns and uh, MTSU. They improved to seven and five. And um, we already know at this point that they're off to play San Diego State in the Hawaii Bowl on Christmas Eve. So my tinfoil conspiracy from last week has a little more credence now, Eric. Um, but you got to be happy with MTSU being able to, you know, hold things off and get to seven wins to end the season for FIU. They fought the whole time. Um, you know, they, as we've, we've talked about, and I'm sure, you know, you touched on it with McIntyre when you spoke to him post game, but this program is, is growing in leaps and bounds and I'm excited to see where they go. Um, and if they can remain uh, healthy for a full year, I think they would have been bowl eligible, but here we are. Yeah, I mean it's tough. I honestly know. I honestly know if they if they if they truly would have been bull eligible. They had their chances. Here's the thing that I'll say against UConn. It, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a factor of health as much as it was a young team that needed to grow. Because if they were the team that they were against Charlotte and against Louisiana Tech against uh, UConn, uh, you know maybe they get that one. Maybe they're able to squeak that one out. And they fought all the way. Here, I mean, they got down Joe pretty early. It was twenty nothing at one point, and it looked like this was going to be another 
five, six, seven score loss for FIU. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about some of the, the huge storylines. A, Hayden Carlson getting the surprise start. It, it happened right in front of me, Joe, uh, as I always, when uh, covering FIU games, I, I watch pregame the first, you know, 30, 45 minutes of pregame from the field. David Yost led his quarterbacks onto the field. Typically, Grayson James is the first one. He's at the, the, the front of the pack, and he's running out there. And I was standing next to one of the other media members. And, Joe, I mean, noticeable is an understatement. I mean, Grayson couldn't put any weight on his leg. I mean, it, it was a, a limp. And then once the quarterbacks were going through their drills, it, half-hearted, again, would be an understatement to say how Grayson was as far as going through the drills. So at that point, you know, it, it was pretty apparent that he wasn't going to start. Hayden Carlson gets the surprise start. Mike McIntyre said that he was notified at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday that Grayson James wouldn't go. And then shortly thereafter, he told Hayden Carlson. Hayden responds with a 414-yard day that definitely got off to a bit of a rough start. Back-to-back interceptions by DeCorian Patterson in uh, the first two drives. But Middle Tennessee wasn't able to get, you know, seven points out of those drives. Back-to-back Zeke Rankin field goals, I think, that definitely left the door open for them. Them, which, you know, right before halftime, I think that's when the FIU offense is really able to kind of get clicking with Hayden. He's able to hook up with Rivaldo Fairweather, who caught three touchdowns in the game. And that's a name that we'll talk about a little bit in the middle portion of this podcast is a, a big conference USA prospect is probably going to get, you know, he's going to have some power five teams calling his way because not often you get 6'5", 245, who runs 4'4", four, four, who can take a 25-yard pass and, you know, outrun the secondary, which he did for his 75-yard touchdown pass, the 75-yard touchdown reception, which made it 24-17. Then uh, FIU scored, looking here, 20, 14, uh, excuse me, um, uh, 21 unanswered points. They had three straight touchdowns uh, connected with Josiah Miamin, the the other tight end for a 21-yard score, and then connected with Fairweather again. Again, when we talked with Mike McIntyre postgame, he said that that was a concerted effort when they knew that they would be without Tyrese Chambers, who uh, sat this one out. Mike McIntyre did say that it was due to injury, but we haven't got anything further on that. Um, and then, of course, Tyrese has announced that he has played his last game for the Panthers. So they knew they were going to be short at receiver and decided to go heavy with the tight ends, uh, as you see all four passing touchdowns caught by FIU tight ends. But in the end, uh, Joe, when you talk about a kid making his first start, yeah, you got to protect the football. He, uh, Hayden Carlson had back-to-back interceptions uh, by Jacoby Thomas. Uh, the the one at the 250 mark was a 28-yard interception return, which ended up being the game-winning score. And then on the final drive, FIU got to the Middle Tennessee State 40. But Jacoby, excuse me, the, the Middle Tennessee State, inside the, the Middle Tennessee State 10-yard line. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Hayden threw a, a fade ball to Rivaldo in the corner of the end zone wasn't able to really place it where I think he wanted to. I think he, he thought that Rivaldo was going to you know, be a little bit more inside on that route because it just was an easy pick for Jacoby Thomas, who took it back uh, down to about the FIU 30-yard line that closed out the game. But all in all, a uh, solid performance for FIU. I think for middle, a bit more of a scare than they really anticipated, especially in the second half. Maybe they got a little bit complacent thinking they were coming to Miami, a team that had been outscored something like 141 to 26 in the past few weeks and thinking this, we're going to blow them out. But all things considered, they did get the win, which is positive, And they'll take that momentum, as you mentioned, to Hawaii. Fantastic result for MTSU, as we talked about. Um, Not necessarily the score, which was good. The fantastic result I'm referring to is, of course, them going to Hawaii. And I don't know, quick, obviously, we'll get more in depth on a future episode, but quick impression of that matchup of them playing San Diego State. That's an interesting one, Joe. No doubt about it. I think it's one that's going to put up some points because if you know Middle Tennessee, Chase Cunningham. 
you know, when he gets going offensively, even in this one, he's quietly threw for 279 yards, but, you know, wasn't around that 350-375 yard mark that uh, you almost think from, from middle, they need that to really have a shot at winning. I'll be interested to see how the middle defense fares. Uh, Jordan Ferguson had a hell of a game, two sacks, three tackles for loss. DeCorian Patterson, Trey Fluellen, um, uh, Teldrick Ross, those guys that he can hang with uh, San Diego State. So it should be an interesting game. I know we're looking forward to that. And of course, we're going to have more news of bull matchups getting announced, um, likely by the time this episode comes out, because news is moving fast as of Monday, November 28th. And with that, we'll transition into the middle segment, talk about some more news throughout the league. And Eric, this is one that kind of broke a little earlier, and this may or may not have to do with a future member of CUSA. Uh, Of course, Sam Houston State are joining Conference USA in 2023, and uh, looks like one of our readers uh tagged us in a in a tweet looking at a flight tracker uh from san marcos to huntsville and back so are texas state interested in casey keeler head coach of sam houston state who knows but uh that could be interesting to see how things play out for the future uh member in the uh, bearcats there that would be very interesting. I mean, I'll take it from the CUSA side of things. Mm-hmm. Sam Houston State, obviously, I think at that level, when you're making the jump up to FBS, a little bit tougher to replace a head coach because you're still trying to establish that foundation, that that you know talent foundation uh, under uh, a head coach is really going to be the face of your organization. So that could get interesting. But yeah, I mean, I'll leave it to the Sun Belt guys to opine as far as that being the higher, but <laughs> potential higher. But that's let's just say that's interesting given my um, assessment of the Texas state program and what they've done the past few times. Yeah, of course. And for those that don't know, Jake Spavitol fired there at Texas state and you can read about that on the site as well. We have been busy the last few hours covering or last few days, I should say uh, covering the coaching carousel and the effects of black Sunday as it's called, um, which on that note, let's let's talk about the FAU situation a little more. Willie Taggart out, of course. And Eric, how do you want to talk about how do you want to approach this conversation? I should say, you know, do you want to talk about uh, where FAU goes from here or your thoughts on, you know, Willie Taggart and, and what's next for him? Or I'll let you lead this part. Joe, I'm going to let you lead off. Um, only because I, I just threw it right back at you, right? That's the classic move. No, here's what, why I'm doing it. I feel like I've given so much thought on Willie Taggart and his, his, for lack of a better word, legitimacy as a head coach. You know what I mean? Like I, I'll be, I'll be out front with it. I think Willie Taggart gets a lot of BS. Um, you know, people I've seen him referred to as a clown on Twitter. I've seen, um, just kind of delegitimizing his opportunities as a head coach. And it, that's fine if you think he's a subpar head coach, but I, I feel like the people are holding who are holding him to a standard, they don't hold others. That's just my opinion. Um, but I, I really want your thoughts on, and you talked about it early on. I just, I want your thoughts on FAU as a job from an outsider's perspective. Cause I feel like a lot of times when I talk about FAU, you know, be fully transparent. I have friends who, who, you know, are part of the program and maybe my perspective is skewed there. So just from an outsider's perspective, what's your thoughts on that job? And then maybe I'll pick it up from there and then kind of give my thoughts on, you know, where they could go from here and what they uh, should expect at the American. 
I think it's kind of a double-edged sword, to be honest with you. On the one hand, you know, can't be mad about getting to live in Boca Raton. You can't be mad about being able to be that close to Miami and all the talent that uh, comes through those high schools in that general area, as well as the rest of Florida, of course. Um, but at the same time, you're in a location where you got to compete with a lot of other uh, schools for not just recruiting, but for market share in terms of fans for, you know, and going to the AAC, it's it's only going to get tougher in, in that regard. But, you know, I, I think you do uh, jumping to the AAC, I think, obviously helps the attractiveness of that job, because, you know, in the minds of a lot of uh, in the minds of a lot of recruits and et cetera, AAC, the AAC is kind of a step above uh, Conference USA. So that's certainly going to help them in certain aspects. But again, it doesn't change the fact that a lot of the same players who, you know, the reason that they find that part of Florida attractive, uh, they probably want to go to my, you know, the U as their first choice. And then they also have FIU right there, which Mike McIntyre is building that into something that could be competitive on the, in the G five landscape. We'll see. Um, and then obviously there's all the other, uh, <laughs> like there, there are plenty of other locales that fit the mold, but it's certainly, it's not a bad job is what I'm saying, but I think it would be dangerous for FAU and their stakeholders to overestimate the attractiveness of that job based on, you know, location alone. Resources are great for sure. But I think at the end of the day, you know, they, you can't get overconfident is what I'm trying to say, but it is still a good job. So I'm really glad you offered that Joe, because this is kind of where I've come when in regards to FAU. They're at a really pivotal point in which they're going to need to establish. And I don't mean that, mean this in a sense that the administration hasn't tried or put in the effort. I mean, if you take one look around their campus, FAU Stadium, one of the better stadiums uh, in G5 landscape, certainly one of the tops in Conference USA and will be very competitive in the American. The Smith Athletic Facility, top-notch, definitely amongst the tops in the American. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is I think just overall as a program, as a fan base, everything – they are at the point, Joe, in which they're going to have to establish, are we FAU or were we Lane Kiffin? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's meaning, a really interesting way to look at it. Meaning, meaning, I think there's a lot of the FAU fan base that they, you know, rightfully so. If you have that level of success, you don't want it to stop, right? I mean, but here's the thing. Lane Kiffin's a damn good football coach. No matter what you think of the guy. Yeah, he's a good football coach, and you see what he's doing at Ole Miss. Was that FAU or was that Lane Kiffin? The answer is probably somewhere in the middle, right? Like Lane's a hell of a recruiter. He brought in talent, and, of course, FAU was able to capitalize on that. But when you look at the Owls prior to Lane Kiffin's arrival, no disrespect to the great Howard Snellenberger, he did get them to uh, some bowl appearances, I believe two, and they had some success. But when Charlie Partridge was there, that job – wasn't very attractive. It was in the FIU realm. Um, and I only say that because that's their South Florida counterpart. That's not a shot at the Panthers. Um, so yeah, they're at a point where they got to figure out, are we FAU or are we Lane Kiffin? And it's a very pivotal point for them. And it's why I understood why they had to make the move now and why I would have understood if they wanted to make that move last year, because they need to come out and establish just a, a pattern of, being a consistent winner. So it's going to be tough. All the things you said, can't debate any of those. Those are all true. Joe, not just FIU, not just Miami, 
everyone in the nation recruits South Florida. I mean, it's it's at right. that point now. I mean, everyone within a a three hour, whether you're a power five, you're recruiting kids out of Miami or hell. Uh, Joe, you saw Rick Stock. Uh, well, it wasn't Rick Stocksville's tweet. Let's clarify that. The Middle Tennessee State uh, Twitter account, because um, mm-hmm. trust me, Coach Stock ain't posting on Twitter. Uh, that came and said the state of Miami, right? You know, they beat UM, FAU, FIU. Like everyone is trying to find an angle to go in there and recruit South Florida. So you, you, the basis of your recruiting can't be. I'm going to recruit South Florida as much as it is for FAU, quite frankly, Joe. And I think you're well versed with Florida enough to know this. They're in Miami, but they're not in Miami. Excuse me. They're in South Florida, but they're not in Miami. Right. So they need to make a concerted effort, whoever takes this job, of winning the hell out of Palm Beach County. There is a Lamar Jackson from Palm Beach County. like, And I think at one point in time might have been an FAU verbal. You might have been. Don't hold me to that. But my point is. There's a ton of even just in, in, in that area code, you know, there's a ton of talent there. Um, so whoever gets that job needs to understand that they need to develop an identity for FAU A and B, just win the hell out of Palm Beach County, you know, and in that area. And then if you know, you'll get your wins in Broward, you'll get your kids from Dade. But yeah, um, certainly a lot to be to be excited about and a lot attractive about that job. Let me ask you this about the way that FAU uh, you know, can go about this higher, I guess. With Lane Kiffin, the trajectory of Kiffin's career at the time was he was this coach who, you know, had a lot of – ran into a lot of issues at Tennessee, USC, et cetera, in regards – and the Raiders um, – with regards to being a head coach. And then FAU was kind of like, here's your opportunity to earn your street cred back, more or less, or your, you know, your credibility back. Sure. Um, and it feels like coming off of Oregon and Florida state, that's more or less the same kind of thing that they did with Willie Taggart. And this time it didn't pan out. So my thought is with FAU, do you kind of continue to go down that path of like finding some of these coaches who, you know, need, need that platform to, to get back after more or less, you know, failing at, you know, a larger school or the NFL or whatever. Or do you kind of go after someone who's a little more unproven, someone from the FCS ranks or, you know, kind of a, a coordinator type that's on the rise? Uh, listen, I, I don't think you can go the FCS ranks. I think that's just too – this job is a little too – I mean, established is not the right word, but I, I, I think, A, you turn off the fan base, um, which is something you have to consider. And to your point, Joe – those were two totally different situations. And I'm not like blaming you. I just want to break them down for our, our audience, right? Okay. Lane Kiffin, that was his own reclamation project. And anyone who was near the situation, which again, I don't I don't cover FAU, but I was, you know, near the situation. Mm-hmm. It was a place that Lane could not be hounded by the media, not have people speculate as to whether or not he's leaving for Auburn, as we saw what happened. Um, live on the water, like have a very non-pressurized lifestyle while doing what he does, which is be a damn good football coach. And again, that's part of the reason that I quite frankly was surprised when Lane left. I didn't think he was going to stay forever, but when I had a chance to talk to him at Conference USA Media Days 2019, mm-hmm. he just sounded like a dude who was at ease. You know, like, man, I, I it's, it's, this is Media Days, and I've got four people at this table instead of 24, you know, 
and I get to come here and just coach football. Um, yep. So I, that's that situation. With Willie Taggart, that was a program where Lane Kiffin was leaving. We all knew that the people didn't want Lane to leave, et cetera. It was damn near at the height of where the program was. They looked around and said, what is the most – high profile is the wrong word, but what is – probably the best option we have here. And regardless of what you think about Willie Taggart now, at the time, you got a guy who did well at the G5 landscape at USF, a guy who is a Floridian, someone who has recruited Florida very well. And listen, his issue was not recruiting Florida here at, at, at FAU during mm-hmm. his tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, that, in my mind, was like, how can we just keep this train on the tracks? No pun intended with the lane train. So now, flipping into this hire, I think – they they have a little more room. I don't say room for error, but a little more room in terms of choosing a coach, right? It doesn't need to be someone who's like, all right, they got to have this tie or a high profile and keep things going. They just need someone who they feel can stabilize things and do the things that I talk about. So I don't think it'll be an FCS coach, but I think if they get a coordinator who can do something with the A, local talent and B, the talent on this roster, they'll be fine. But Joe, all things considered, I do got to say one thing. And I don't want this again to sound like we're clocking Willie Taggart's defense. Okay. You want to know a factor that really cost Willie Taggart his job? Deion Sanders chose Jackson State job. You know why I say that? Uh, I, you talked about it on Twitter, and it had it was uh, Shador, Shador yeah. Sanders, and we all know Joe, the player that Shador Sanders is turning out to be at Jackson State. Yes, and that is, that that is not a byproduct of him being at the FCS level. Shador is the real deal. Mm-hmm. Shador was committed to Florida Atlantic. And I'm telling you right now, Shador, I'm not saying that he would have started over Nikosi Perry immediately had, had they, um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, the sequence of events. If Shador committed and then they got Nikosi, um, ah, gosh, I cannot remember the sequence of events, but I'm just telling you this right now. I, 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 this, I'm not putting everything on quarterback, Joe, but if they had Shador Sanders, we might be having a different discussion. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So he's been so good. But yeah. yeah. So, you know, with that in mind, kind of going after the coordinator type, I guess, who are some of the names that you want to see them, you know, aggressively pursue in the next couple of weeks? This is just me. Mm-hmm. I saw Cyrus's piece on Travis Trickett. Mm-hmm. I saw, you know, his piece on Deion Sanders, and that's pie in the sky. I said this to a couple of people. I mean, I don't think they'll be mad if I divulged them. I said this to Cyrus. I said this to Kevin Fielder. Um, a couple of people. You look at some of the names that were involved in the FIU search. Willie Simmons, FAMU head coach. I think that would be an excellent hire. Uh, Tim Harris Jr., UCF offensive coordinator. Has those South Florida ties. Someone who, um, you know, is a Dade County guy, but could come in there and do some things. Now, it might be a little bit tough because he's a little less experienced on the coordinator side, but still someone who, if you want someone who, who can play to the local aspect of it, can get the job done. I do like Travis Trickett a, a, as an idea. I, I really like Charlie Weiss Jr., um, but that okay. might be a, a little a little harder to, to convince him, right? But Charlie Weiss Jr., who currently is at Ole Miss, someone who, again, was on Lane Kiffin's staff at FAU. Um, I think he would be a, a home run hire. So, yeah, if you ask my top two, I'd probably say Charlie Weiss Jr. and Willie Simmons, it, just for me personally. Yeah, Charlie Weiss Jr., I can see. What do you think of two other guys who were involved in that Lane Kiffin um, era of the program? Glenn Spencer, 
uh, former defensive coordinator. And I think this is a long shot. I think there's a lot that kind of goes into determining whether or not this guy is ready for a, a head coaching job, but I've just been a fan of his for a long time. Uh, Clint Trickett. Both of those names are pretty interesting, Joe. I mean, Clint Trickett is at Marshall, as you mentioned, was uh, on on Lane Kiffin's staff there. Uh, I think he was a uh, quarterback's coach. Yeah, no, he was yep. co-OC. And tight, co-OC. tight ends coach as well. Yeah, yeah, and in service tight ends coach. So definitely has that experience. That's interesting. I, I, I would not be opposed to that. Glenn Spencer, I, I have to dispose my dispose disclose my bias. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm friends with his wife, former ESPN reporter Janine Edwards. So Janine would, uh, she hears this and and Herbie not advocate for Glenn, that might be an issue. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen um, only because this isn't a, a shot at Glenn Spencer at all. I thought Glenn Spencer really – did he – was he, was he ever going to be a real candidate for that, Joe, for that job, Joe, when he was the interim? Um, probably not, right? I mean, he had one game there. But you saw how well that defense played under him. And those kids really loved him. But the difference is they're now three years removed from that short stint. So I don't see that being the case. I know he's pretty, you know, well nestled in there at Wake Force as a linebacker coach. His last stint as a coordinator was at South Florida. But, you know, anyone who knows Glenn Spencer, very familiar with Conference USA, was one of the top coordinators in CUSA with Charlotte, go back and ask Alex Highsmith and those guys. Alex Highsmith personally credits Glenn Spencer from being in the NFL. So uh, yeah. that should speak to his pedigree right there. Before then was a longtime assistant with Oklahoma State. You know, I believe he was a head coach at West Georgia, if memory serves me correct. But um, I, I just don't see that being being viable. Not that Glenn, Glenn Spencer wouldn't make a fine head coach. Uh, I, I just don't know if it's viable. Uh, I, I think some of the younger, the not even the younger, some of the offensive minded names, uh, I think are probably going to be a little more um, attainable at this point. Fair enough. Fair enough. We talked about one future CUSA member already with Sam Houston State, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Hugh Freeze news of current Liberty coach. It uh, looks like he is headed to Auburn, getting another crack at the SEC. So, you know, Eric would love to get your initial uh, reaction to this and where you think Liberty goes from here as they prepare to transition into CUSA in 2023. Joe, I mentioned on Twitter, I was surprised, and maybe I shouldn't be, because when you look at all the circumstances on paper, right? Liberty, and I've talked about my experience covering their games, having been to Williams Stadium there in Lynchburg, one of the top facilities, not just a G5, like in college football. They have phenomenal facilities, certainly have the financial backing to compete, to compete as was evidenced by the extension that they gave Hugh Freeze. However, at the end of the day, Joe, at Auburn, in theory, you got a shot to compete for a – national championship. In theory, we know how tough the SEC is. At Liberty, your ceiling is always going to be, what, 10, 11 wins, tops, and a top 20 finish. I mean, it just kind of is what it is, right? I mean, I don't think, especially in Conference USA, there's not the room to make a Liberty the next UCF or Houston or since, or UCF or Cincy, right, who competes for a college football playoff spot. You know, now, of course, they're heading to the Big 12, but you get the point. So I guess I shouldn't be shocked that he left. Um, initial thoughts, I'll be very intrigued to see where they go from here. Because when you look at their head coaching history, you know, they had Hugh Freeze and then Turner Gill. Who, uh, who opened that program, right? So, yeah. Joe, and and I mean, listen, when discussing Liberty, you know, we've tried to uh, avoid some of the other, you know, more salacious, scandalous stuff, but mm-hmm. I, I'm only mentioning, mentioning it here because I, I think it's, 
I think is crucial in assessing the um, perception of liberty from when Hugh Freeze took that job to now, right? Okay. If, if you look at what liberty was prior to Hugh Freeze, th- they just hadn't had that level of A, uh, getting a high profile, well, almost a first round pick. Of course, unfortunately, Malik, Will- Malik Willis was a third round pick, but that high profile, you know, Heisman candidate, right? They, they yeah. hadn't had that type of player. Um, you look at Liberty prior, Hugh Freeze, eight wins, 10 wins, eight wins. But prior to that, you know, Turner Gill in his seven years there, I, I, they were an independent. So, of course, that played a factor. But I think they made what I say earlier, two bowl games. They made, oh, no, I'm sorry. They they went six and six in their first year as an FBS independent. So they were an FCS team prior to 2018. The, the perception of Liberty, right, was mm-hmm. essentially, and I hope this doesn't ruffle any feathers, the overarching, like, broad perception wasn't football. It was all of the other stuff. Now, at least with Hugh Freeze, you've created a, a tradition and and a overall overarching perception of just football, just winning, right? You have sure. guys, guys who have come from power five schools who transferred to Liberty and can say, hey, like they have, you know, a, a, a lineage. They have players who can say, yeah, go there and it'll do, they'll do X for you. They'll do Y for you, right? Just a pure on-the-field football pedigree they didn't have prior, right? So I think that is really going to be interesting in terms of making the next hire. Um, I just don't know. I think what their options may have been prior, right, may have been a a bounce back, something we had to take coming off of a scandal like Hugh Freeze. Now um, they may have some options, and it should be interesting. But hopefully I said that artfully because I felt like I was kind of all over the place. So I'll kind of succinctly make this point one last time. I think where that job is now, it's in a much better place because they can point to on-field success in addition to players in college football who can say, hey, you go to Liberty and they'll put you in the NFL. You go to Liberty, you're going to get a chance to compete on ESPN. As opposed to when Hugh Freeze was hired, the first thing you thought about with Liberty football, just quite frankly, wasn't on-the-field success. You know, it was all the other stuff. That's fair, right? Yeah, I don't disagree with the the fact that the Liberty football program is in a significantly better place than it was before Hugh Freeze. That that's absolutely a fact for all the reasons that you pointed out. I don't think that <laughs> that success on the field has, you know, cleaned that perception entirely of the university and the program because Hugh Freeze has his own past and that's been debated to death on Twitter. That's that's fine. I think, again, where this program is, it's a much more attractive job to all these potential candidates. And also, you know, I think Liberty has kind of made it clear of like, even if you are coming off of one of these other things, uh, of of any of these other things, you know, whatever it may be. Again, it doesn't seem like they care and they have, you know, plenty of resources to invest. Like you've said, they've, they've built those facilities into something particularly impressive um, based on that contract that they gave Hugh Freeze just a couple of months ago. And, and which, by the way, nice little strategy on their part to kind of get that buyout up right before uh, hiring <laughs> season starts. It's almost, you know, it, <laughs> clearly they had to know there was going to, you know, someone was going to come knocking for him and, and they benefit from that. So you can't be mad at that move. But, you know, for, for them now, I think kind of the next step there is to just kind of find somebody who can kind of continue the momentum. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what direction they take. And also, I'm going to be interested to see who Freeze takes with him to Auburn. Because frankly, I would want to see um, 
I'd be interested to see if somebody like Kent Austin would get an, a realistic shot to take over the program because he's the co-offensive coordinator of that program. He's the quarterback's coach, um, has been a head coach in the CFL um, and, uh, you know, at, at a few other places as well. Um, oh, gosh, where was he? At? Oh, he was, an, he was an OC at Old Miss. That's right. Um, back in the day. So, and of course, was the quarterback's coach with Malik Willis, like we just talked about. So that, that's somebody that I think would be a really good person. If they can kind of bring him in, I, again, I don't know who Freeze is taking with him, that sort of thing. We don't know. Um, but that's a name to keep an eye on, in my opinion. And yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of end it there with with the Liberty discussion. Um, as they kind of come into CUSA, I think they have kind of brought themselves to a point where they can compete. Um, we'll see if that continues. I think they'll still be one of those teams that's going to compete for CUSA titles in 2023 and beyond. Um, but they need to, again, nail this coaching hire the way that they did with Hugh Freeze. Because, you know, whether you like him or not, and, you know, I, I'm not going to argue with anybody that has a problem with some of the things in his past and some of the things that he did, even while he was at Liberty, he won a lot of games. <laughs> and I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at. Which, by the way, for all these jobs, he's very young, but um, he's 32 years old. But I think it's only a matter of time before we see uh, UTSA co-OC Will Stein start getting serious coordination for some of these offensive jobs, um, particularly with the Texas State job. I think he's kind of a low risk, uh, high reward kind of situation there. He's He's been in the Austin area. Um and obviously done a lot of good things with UTSA since he's uh, been part of that staff uh, coming on in 2020. Coached at Lake Travis um, and also was part of uh, Charlie Strong's staff at Texas in 2017. So, and well, 2015 to 2017, but there you go. All right. Transfer portal. It's, uh, it's, it's happening. Um, Monday, November 28th, um, players are already hitting it. We know Grant DeBose is in there from Charlotte. There's going to be a few more. Uh, from the CUSA side, they're going to go in there. And then December 5th is the, I believe that's the last day to declare. Um, folks can uh, jump out before then. But, um, you know, Eric, I'm interested to see how A, players kind of utilize the new transfer rules to, you know, either come into CUSA, leapfrog to a Power 5 opportunity. You know, I know there's a few guys within this league that could probably uh, make that happen for themselves in the next couple of months. And, you know, we'll see who who takes advantage here. Yeah, Joe, I mean, it's almost inevitable at this point in time that we have to talk transfer portals. As you mentioned, that December 5 deadline's coming up, and then uh, we got, you know, a couple other deadlines as far as uh, early signing day coming up before, before we know it. So definitely going to see a lot of guys enter the portal. Just two quick thoughts here. One, I've had a couple, you know, player personnel uh, um, people from various schools reach out to me and they've raised two points and definitely want to get your thoughts on air on these one talking about this year and specificity could be really interesting with the portal because you have a lot of players. And I think Bud Elliott um, got a shout out, Bud, because he, I think he knows this as well. Uh, a lot of players from the 2021 recruiting class who for various reasons, because of COVID Either their school didn't play a full season of football, didn't play at all, depending on what state you lived in, and and or they, as far as coaches, they didn't really get a chance to see those players in person until they got to camp. 
they got to, 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 to campus. I can say that for FIU, the entire 21 recruiting class for FIU, then head coach Butch Davis, didn't meet them in face-to-face. Of course, it is the whole Zoom deal, but he didn't meet them face-to-face until they arrived on campus. And the fact of the matter is this, you might've had some guys who you, you thought you had a good feel for, and quite frankly, they just aren't what you thought they were. And, you know, they could go a different direction. Maybe some of those guys got to campus, and realized this isn't, this isn't the spot I want to go to. And they may go a different direction. But then another point I want to get your thoughts on. And again, I think it's something that we, we kind of have to be ahead of the game here on the portal, Joe, especially covering group of five football. Uh, same, you know, player personnel people said to me that at this point, a few years into the transfer portal game, you know, year one, it was really exciting to have that five-star kid who you had no shot at, right? Four-star, five-star kid you had no shot at in your backyard who was going to go power five. All of a sudden, you see his name in the portal. It's like, let's bring him here. He's coming back home, right? But now, after a few years, maybe you got a realization that some of these five-star and four-star kids who end up at power fives, they just aren't going to pan out at that level. And maybe we shouldn't take a scholarship on them. Maybe, you know, they've been so accustomed to the power five lifestyle and for them to come down to the group of five level, I say down in air quotes, there are certain, you know, amenities and, and luxuries they may not have, or they may just feel like, Hey, like I was at a power five and, and you know, this ain't it. Um, you might not get the most out of that in terms of maximizing their scholarships, but you are seeing a lot of teams. I mean, Joe, we saw this with the team you cover in Western Kentucky, take a lot of guys from Houston or was Houston Baptist. Um, now Houston Christian, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah yep. Houston Christian. Um, and we saw that worked to, uh, you know, an incredible level of success. And even this year with Austin Reed, like it worked out again, is there value for the portal instead of on those, those four-star guys, maybe going to the FBS, Joe, the FCS, Joe, and even just as we're taping this podcast, I've been trying to keep an eye on my phone to see some of the names who are entering the, the, the portal. And I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen way more North Dakota states and Bryant's and, you know, Sacramento states and teams, Joe, teams that either are, are still in the playoffs um, or, you know, had successful years and are done. But uh, so many FCS players, FCS All-Americans, all conference in their FCS hitting the portal. So I think that's going to be super interesting um, as we, you know, kind of assess the portal here. So just kind of grab your thoughts on that, you know, because by the time we tape next week, some of these guys are going to have homes and I'm sure a lot of them are going to be in conference USA. Yeah. You know, I I think that's going to continue to happen. Some of these players that basically pick their school sight unseen, we're going to have a few more of those kids jump into the portal here to kind of get a, uh, you know, basically redo their recruitment, kind of find, uh, do it properly in in some regards, kind of see um, some of these facilities firsthand, actually meet the coaches in person as opposed to Zoom or on the phone or whatever, and kind of find the best fit for them there. So, and again, because recruiting resources were limited during that period, I think, I, th- I think some coaches are going to really hit it hard now and try to make sure that they don't um, not make the same mistake. Cause obviously there's a lot of factors under their control, but just kind of make up for lost time, I, I guess is kind of the the point there. Like they're going to go out, they're going to try to see as many of these, uh, these high school kids that want to come in in person as they can. And now that, that some of these guys who, you know, maybe didn't really get tape, as a result of COVID had that opportunity in 2021 and can actually like put together like a real, you know, application for lack of a better term, they can actually like have a, a pitch for themselves. 
Sure. No, I mean, those are all, you know, fair points as far as the kids, um, as far as the kids who kind of did things sight unseen. Um, so there's that. And, and then, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on as far as, uh, you know, Conference USA, maybe all of G5 um, mm-hmm. recruits from the lower level, as opposed to just picking up, you know, insert four-star kid who was at Texas or Alabama or wherever. Yeah, I mean, as far as CUSA and G5 guys or CUSA and G5 schools recruiting kind of the lower levels with like your FCS uh, type schools and D2, et cetera, I think there's enough case studies now to see like how well that can actually work, right? Like um, Austin Reed coming in from West Florida was really solid. Grant DeBose is another one. He came up from, uh, you know, from from a non-major college and, and played really well at Charlotte. Um, and Tyrese Chambers too was a sacred heart and then uh, did what he did at FIU and kind of built you know, his, his name up to what it is now as he gets ready to go to the NFL. I think it's only going to continue, you know, obviously there's only so many roster spots, but I think we're going to continue to kind of see that now. Like you don't have to go to high school. You don't have to go to Juco. It's open season more or less. Yeah. You know, like I said, it's just something that I I thought was interesting and kind of fascinating because it's one thing to kind of have the hypothesis, but when you have people who are working in college football, reach out to you and say, Hey, like, this is the approach we're going to take to this. And I think again, you're seeing it not only um, with people saying that, but the amount of FCS kids are seeing transfer, you know, I I hope we don't get to a point. My only fear is like the amount of FBS kids we're seeing enter the portal. I hope we don't get to a point where there's only so many scholarships and some of those FCS kids end up without a home because that would really suck. Um, but I do think it's something to keep an eye on. It could absolutely happen. And I mean, we had, there were a few examples this past year of kids from the FBS level who entered the portal thinking they were going to get, you know, a a bigger and better opportunity somewhere else. And it either didn't happen or it happened at the last possible second. You know what I mean? Like odds are in the first couple of years that these rules are in place, I think I said this before, but there are going to be kids who make that mistake, you know, in order to, I mean, not not on purpose, but they're going to make that mistake and be examples for these next kids up who come in and think they're going to get a major opportunity <clears throat> based on their body of work at the FCS, the D2 level or whatever. And again, there's only so many roster spots. So I think the situation you're describing is definitely going to happen for at least a few of these kids. Maybe not like the North Dakota State players of the world, but for some of these other ones, for sure. All right, with that, let's jump into a preview for the CUSA championship game, UTSA and North Texas in the Alamo Dome, Friday, December 2nd at 6.30 p.m. Central Time, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, You know, for this one, I'm taking UTSA. I think even with the injuries that we talked about, um, some of them are pretty major. Um, I believe the, the main ones were... Uh, Brendan Brady at running back here. Um, Gavin Sharp is out as well, so they're going to be hurting in tight end depth. But even with that, as we saw in this past week, they're so deep in terms of offensive weapons. I think this is once again going to be a tough uh, contest for North Texas. That defense is going to have to play the best game that they've played. And oddly enough, one of the best games that they have played uh, from all aspects of the game was against UTSA later this year. They're going to have to do that and more if they realistically want to win this game because this is a UTSA team that 
even with like small margins for error, has come through it at nearly every opportunity this game or this year, I should say. They're ten and two. They've you know they still want to a repeat as champions. They want to get to the bowl game and they want to win. This is a team that is as driven as I've I've seen in a long time, and we kind of picked up that notion from them. Um, basically from the first moment they walked into CUSA media days, but with North Texas, obviously they have a lot of good players that have, you know, stuck to it all year. Ikaka Ragsdale has only gotten better. Uh, Austin Ani, we've seen him improve so much. I, I can't think of a better way for this season to culminate really. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's tough because for me with North Texas, when we've seen them at their peak, they've absolutely looked like a team that, can compete with UTSA and UTSA is coming to this game really banged up, really injured. Can Seth Luttrell's club put together four cores of consistent football, play their game to a T and compete with the top player in conference USA and Frank Harris in my mind. I'm expecting a close ball game. I don't, I haven't seen the line on this one just yet, but at the end of the day, I think this is, UTSA is trying to close out their conference USA tenure with two straight conference titles, which would be incredible um, to take that kind of momentum into the American. I think their team is playing with a ton of confidence. You know, yes, North Texas, they found a way to win the games that they've needed to get to the CUSA title game, but it just would have been nice to see them kind of capture that energy that they had against FIU on some of their better wins down the stretch. It's been a bit of a fight. Um, you know, they're battling some injuries as well. Um, with Oscar Attaway and others. So, um, and at the end of the day, for me, I'm going with UTSA. This game, if it is anything like the first contest that we saw between these two teams, it's going to be electric. These two teams do not like each other. These two fan bases do not like each other. And at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, friendly rivalry that's right on the edge of maybe being not so friendly is what college football is all about. So I am excited to jump into this one. And in a future episode, we're going to dive into bowl games. We're obviously going to continue to talk about the transfer portal. And if you got into us in the last little swing of the season here, obviously we're going to talk about recruiting and more and the future of CUSA as it's uh takes on a much different face in 2023. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at underdog dynasty at J O E H I O underscore for me at Eric C Henry underscore for Eric. And of course, underdog dynasty.com for more G five football coverage every single day, 365 days a year. We will do our best to get you something new and fun to read every day. All right. Happy football watching everybody. We'll talk to you soon. 